<laughs> uh, funny story. So this episode was actually supposed to be out last week, but because it was finals week in school, I was unable to edit and upload this in time. So everyone's getting this a week later than it should have came out. So here's the rundown. This episode will be up shortly. And then Saturday, we'll return to our regular upload schedule, where that's when I'll drop the new episode. So, to all our listeners out there, I apologize for that. Hopefully, it doesn't happen again in the future. Without further ado, let's get straight into that podcast. Good morning, everyone, and we're coming to you live from the Center for Media Innovation here at Point Park University. This is the Rossetti and Stewart podcast. It is I, Tony Rossetti, and I'm here with... Of course, your boy, Justin Stewart. There was a big, busy week of sports. Baseball's in full swing. NBA playoffs in full swing. We got the NFL draft coming up. But the first things first, uh, we're going to talk about the Dallas Mavericks and Luka Doncic. Going up three to two in the series, Luka Doncic puts up 33 points, 13 rebounds. Jalen Brunson, solid game, 24 points. Mavericks. Ever since it just seems ever since they got rid of Porzingis, Porzingis is a great talent. But for some reason, when Luka, you know, gets to be that number one option and doesn't get his touches stolen away from him, they've really been popping off this whole entire time. They've really been playing some real good basketball lately. They had over 50 wins, jumped to the four seed. Mavericks are looking good. Do you think they could finish it off in Utah? I don't know about Utah, but here's the thing, though. So Donovan Mitchell was out there in garbage time yesterday. And here's my little rant about that. So doesn't matter if it's hockey, football, basketball, baseball. Why are some of these guys being left out here in the open to be exposed to injury? Like, this is what happened to Luka the last game of the regular season. Pretty much, it was a meaningless game. They were playing Utah regardless. It was just a matter of who had home field, a home court advantage in Game 7 if that went to that point. Yeah, he got hurt, and they could have used him. Obviously, Jalen Brunson stepped up, and Spencer Dinwiddie and the rest of the crew stepped up. But imagine if they had Luka. If they had Luka, they'd probably win this in five games. They might have even swept them, honestly. I, I'm very confident in that statement. And to me, Utah, with this current core of Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert, it's just not going to work out. Um, they're going to have to get rid of one of them. I think you get rid of Gobert because he's a little bit older. Mitchell's much younger. Gobert, obviously, is an elite defensive player. There's no doubt about it. But offensively, his game isn't really polished. It's not great. He can get you 10 points, 12 points. But Donovan Mitchell can score you 30 on any night. And I think you take that over Rudy Gobert. And Utah has a lot of shooters, too. But... They need to have, like, a superstar. Like, let's, let's be real about it. Like, if you don't have a superstar on your roster, it's kind of hard to win in this league. And there's a lot of teams, I think, that have stars. But I think there's a difference between superstar and star, like I mentioned in last week's episode, actually. Jason Tatum, we, we'll probably talk about him a little bit later. He's, like, entering superstar territory. You know, Kevin Durant, superstar. Giannis Antetokounmpo, superstar. Steph Curry, super, superstar. So, Utah has... A star and all-star. Not surprised. Dallas, I think they're moving on. Obviously, I think their addition of Spencer Dinwiddie was huge. People talk about Dallas. They kind of crap on the, the supporting cast around Luka. And listen, it's not awesome. But we saw they are competent and they're capable individuals. And they they all of them stepped up. Maxi Kleber, too. Like, they all stepped up. So, you know, Dallas, they're going to be a tough out for whoever they face in the second round, which I imagine would probably be, I think, Phoenix or Phoenix or New, New Orleans. Orleans yeah. yeah. So if they match up with Phoenix, if Phoenix can somehow, you know, I think the Dallas Mavericks have a path to the Western Conference Finals. I think they can beat either one of those teams. Now, if Devin Booker comes back, that's, I'm taking the Suns. But if for some reason the Pelicans upset the Suns in the first round without Devin Booker, I think the Mavericks have a clear path to the conference finals. You mentioned a good thing about their supporting cast. They get knocked way too much, and I know Dwight Powell kind of hurt them in that in that last game where he missed the free throws at the end of the game, but he's a solid player. I've liked him since he was at Stanford when they upset Andrew Wiggins and Joel Embiid. And Maxi Kleber, zero points, five rebounds. 
But if you watched the game, if you watch how he plays, you wouldn't be able to tell. You wouldn't be able to tell because he get, goes out there, he gives you hard minutes every single game. And Spencer Dinwiddie is just one of those guys that you want on your team because even if he doesn't score, he's a long and taller point guard that can, you know, play some defense. So, no, I agree 100%. This Dallas Mavericks team, they're they're the real deal. And, I mean, I think they can finish it off in Utah. Utah did not look so good last game. And, you know, going up against the Mavericks defense, like Dorian Finney-Smith, too. Like, the whole team can act, can play. The whole team can play. So, Dorian Finney-Smith, though, he's one of those players. He's one of the longest tenured players for the Mavericks. Uh, it could be Dwight Powell. It's, it's one of the two. That being said, like, you got a team, you got a nucleus of players who have played together for a while now. Luka Doncic, Dwight Powell, Maxi Kleber, uh, even Jalen Brunson, even though he hasn't been in the league a long time. This team has played together for a while, and a lot of the teams adjusted to the Utah Jazz and their style of play. Because last year we saw they won, they were 50, they won 52. They had the best record in the West, won 52 games. They were clicking. They were moving the ball well. They had great ball movement. And it just seems like this year teams adjusted to that style, teams adjusted to their system. And this is just – this is what, like, what Justin said. This is kind of what happens when you don't have that superstar because now that you know teams see how the Jazz play, and they're not shooting as efficiently as they did last year. I mean, it's like a completely different team. I mean, they're they, they went from they were fifty two and twenty. Now they're forty nine and thirty three, and they're on the verge of getting eliminated in the first round. So I mean, it's like a completely different team with Utah this year compared to last year. And I just uh, I don't see how long this this core can last, especially with teams like the Suns, with the Grizzlies. I mean, even if when the Nuggets have are, are fully healthy and, and the Warriors as well. I just don't see how this team could compete now anymore unless they really add another they I mean if they add one more piece they could but who knows I mean right now I just they're just not clicking and this is coming from someone who likes Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, the whole shebang, the whole team even you know Bojan can shoot, Joe Ingles can shoot. I mean, yeah, it's just concerning. I would say with Quinn Snyder, the coach for uh, Utah Honestly, that Lakers job's looking a little bit more enticing as the days go on because Utah, they're stuck in what I call no man's land. They're not good enough to tank, or no, they're not good enough to win a championship, and they're not bad enough to tank right now. And I think you have to be cautious with always wanting to blow things up with your roster. If Utah does that, they're they're going to be in the bottom dweller for the next three or four years, and you have to like be lucky with the lottery because we've seen you can have the worst record. But it doesn't mean you get the number one overall pick. So I don't see any franchise-altering players in the next few years in the draft. So I don't think it's even worth tanking. I think your hope is, I think your hope is to hope someone gets hurt down the road, maybe next year, or the year after, and hopefully they take advantage of that and maybe they can get through to a finals. But last year, like you said, they won 52 games. They were actually the one seed in the West too. So and they had a chance to beat the Clippers, and they, they couldn't cash in. And I think that was their best chance to probably win a championship because they didn't have to go through LeBron, didn't have to go through, like, the Warriors, the Dynasty Warriors, and, you know, that was it was wide open. And the Clippers were, I think by that time, I think Kawhi might have been out that series or most of the series. So you didn't even take advantage of that. It was just Paul and George as the main scorer. So to me, um, Utah's dropped the ball. It's kind of disappointing because, like, if you look outside of the Carl Malone and John Stockton era, they've pretty much been a perennial playoff team. They they just can never get far because they just they've just never had that the player that gets them over the hump. I mean, Darren Williams was very good, but didn't get him get him over the hump. You know, Al Jefferson was good, didn't give him over the hump. Gordon Hayward was good. I mean, they have Utah's had a lot of good players. They just they're not Derek good Favors enough to too, put in some good years. Derek Favors too. And they had Paul Millsop too, so I mean they've had talent. Utah, it's not like they're like they have incompetent leadership. They they have very competent leadership. It's just they're just always good, but they're not great, and that's just not not no bueno, no bueno. Yeah, but another thing too is we're gonna I'm gonna move on to the East side now, the Raptors and 76ers. And I I said before if James Harden doesn't step it up, they could be in trouble. And I know they they were up 3-0, but it's 3-2 now. And Joel Embiid, you know, hurt his thumb. And here's here's the thing. 
they were up 3 nothing. Joel Embiid was playing good, but James Harden is not. You know, Tyreek's Maxi hasn't been as efficient as he was in those first two or three games. Now it's a 3-2 series. You're going into Toronto. I think you you could you you go into, you know, you start to get concerned now. You you have to go into full defense mode. I mean, you only scored 88 points against the Raptors on your home floor, and you know, James Harden has just not been playing good at all. This is his chance to show that hey, you know, I could play in the playoffs and he just hasn't. He hasn't put up the numbers he does in the regular season at all. Uh, we never see that Rockets version of him where he averaged 36 points a game. I like James Harden as a player. He needs to step it up because right now he's really killing his team because now it's a 3-2 series and going into Toronto is never easy. Pascal Siakam's been playing good. I mean, their whole team is just their team is just a bunch of nitty-gritty players like OG Anunoby, Fred Van Vliet, you know, Gary Trent. This team is just a. I mean, Van Vliet was an underdog his whole his whole career. I mean, he was at Wichita State. He he was playing behind Ron Baker, and then he became a starter. So I mean, he wasn't even supposed to be a starter in the NBA, yet alone be in the NBA. I mean, he so Pascal Siakam was the twenty seventh pick out of New Mexico State, which is in the WAC. It just like the whole OG Anunoby. I mean, I'm pretty sure he was a one and done from. I think Indiana, but the whole team is just uh, was unheralded, and now that's coming back to bite the 76ers because I feel like they're taking them easy now, and they took them easy. Embiid gets hurt. That's gonna that's gonna I I wouldn't be shocked if we see a comeback win for the Raptors. I think that would actually be pretty crazy. Before I respond to that though, I just want to plug our podcasting platform. So of course, thank you guys for tuning in to episode eight of the Rosetti and Stewart podcast, like Tony said. We're coming from you from the Center for Media Innovation here at Point Park University in downtown Pittsburgh. If you want to find us, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcast, we're probably on there 9.9 times out of 10. So there's that. But back to the 76ers and Raptors, though. The Raptors were down 3 and nothing, and I think it's entirely plausible that they can actually come back and win this series. I do agree with that. I told you in the beginning when we were like making these playoff predictions, the Raptors, people were sleeping on them. They just assumed that Philadelphia, because Joe LMB was playing at an MVP level, that they were just going to cruise through the Raptors. Like people, I can tell people have not been paying attention to the Raptors one bit because they went under the radar, and we kind of like forgot about them once Kawhi left. They were like a game away without Kawhi by, from going back to the Eastern Conference Finals the year after he left. And then last year, not this year, but last year, you can throw that away because, first of all, they weren't even home. They were playing Tampa Bay. And that was that whole COVID year that just wrecked their entire squad. So they were a lot better than what their record indicated last year. But this year, they've bounced back, won like 48 games. And, yeah, defensively, Van Vliet yesterday. But, you know, you still have Pascal Siakam, OG Ananobi. Scotty Barnes, of course, they still have a solid team. So Toronto is not about one individual. It's, it's it, they, they play a team game. It's never about one player, and that's why they've been so successful over these past six to eight years, even going back to the core of Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan, just play team, selfish, unselfish-oriented basketball. Tony, when's the last time we've seen James Harden get you like a 40-point triple-double? When's the last time he's done that? I mean, I don't, I don't expect you to know the exact date. But it's been – I don't think he ever did it with Brooklyn, and I sure as heck know he didn't do it with Philadelphia. Yeah, I remember, like, I was at the Rockets Rockets and Cavs game in, uh, at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. It was, like, December 11th, 2019. He dropped 55. That was the three straight 50-point games. We haven't seen that. We haven't seen that from him. And the thing is, he's good enough to do it, and it just – he doesn't – it just doesn't look like – I don't want to say he doesn't want it because he clearly probably does, but he just isn't as aggressive as he usually is. And because, you know, to me in the NBA, you still have to want it a little bit. But it just seems like he hasn't taken over like he usually does. And I also think it is a testament to the Raptors that they're able to, you know, clamp down on them and, you know, cut into this lead because it also shows like Nick Nurse is a real good coach. He really has a good control of that team. And it also goes to show how important momentum is. Look at the teams that are doing well right now. 
the Dallas Mavericks caught heat late in caught late, heat late in the playoffs. I mean, in the regular season, you have the New Orleans Pelicans, who weren't even supposed to make the playoffs, make their way all the way from you know eleven or twelve all the way not only into the play-in but they play themselves into a game a series with the Suns. It's two to two now, and now with Booker out, they have a real good chance to actually win that series. And now you have the Raptors. They were a terrible first-half team. They started off real slow. Now they have a chance right now. Like I know they're still down 3-2. It's almost impossible to come back 3 nothing. But just the fact that they got to this point to cut it to this and actually have a chance to tie the series up is just shows how important momentum is going into the playoffs because we've seen teams do it before. Like For example, that Warriors team with Baron Davis uh, where they – one in the first round, like they were an eight seed. It just shows like how important momentum is late because even last year, take a look at the Utah Jazz. Great, they were a great team the whole year, but like they slowed down at the tail end of the regular season, and that showed in the playoffs because they lost in the playoffs as well. Even the Atlanta Hawks back in 2015, they were on massive runs midway through the season. But they were just another team that, you know, they lost that momentum till end of the year and they didn't have that star power like the Cavs and they lost. So, you know, I find I cringe because I thought the Hawks would actually beat the Cavs that year. I don't know why, because like that, maybe they had, quote unquote, four all stars and Kyle Korver somehow made the all star team, which I thought was hilarious. Kyle Korver is one of the all time great three point shooters. So I'm not disrespecting him, but I just, just found it hilarious. But they got I think it swept, I think. Yeah, they got destroyed. Yeah, it wasn't even a contest. Back to our like original point, though, or my original point. James Harden, I'm actually going to criticize him. But James Harden, actually, to me, he just doesn't look as fast as he used to. And obviously, he's a little bit older now. He's just like 32, 31 years old. But he just doesn't look quick. He just looks kind of slow and sluggish all the times. And I don't know what his workout regimen is. I don't know what his practice regimen is. But it just doesn't look, it just doesn't look the same. And... You know, I, Philadelphia, you know, Joe Embiid's the number one option. But Joe Embiid's clearly not playing up to his potential right now because he's just suffered a, a finger injury. So he's not going to be giving you probably 40 points and 20 rebounds. Like That's not going to happen in this playoffs. So he's going to need surgery on that. So, you know, when you look at this roster, you have Tyrese Maxey, Danny Green, Tobias Harris, and then you have James Harden. Like, those are your main scores. And when James Harden is only giving you 20 points – on 5 of 17 shooting or something along that line, that that's just not good enough. And we've seen James Harden in the past. When Chris Paul went out, they had a golden chance to, no pun intended, they had a golden chance to beat the Warriors, and he faltered down the stretch in games 6 and 7. And previous years, the same thing, faltered down the stretch. And I just, to me, he just doesn't, it's not that he doesn't have that it factor or doesn't want to have a desire to win, but it's just... I don't know. I don't know with James Harden. He's just very confusing to me. Like you, I read the report when he was with the Nets that he came into this season out of shape, and Kevin Durant's like WTF, dude. Like we're supposed to be like on a championship run, and you're coming in the in the, in the practice out of shape. He did it in Houston too, multiple times. Most notably, his last year in Houston when he demanded a trade, just coming to camp like out of shape and you know he's still he's still like a great player he can get you 20 and 10 like walking in his sleep without even trying but it just looks like he's just sluggish and like he just doesn't score as much as he used to he's a facilitator he can get you 10 assists there's nothing wrong with that but there's going to be points in times where you're going to need to go off and I just don't think he has that maybe not this year I don't know if ever again but he just doesn't look like he has that kind of mindset where he can just take over a game by himself i've i've yet to see him take over a game in like two or three years now and he's getting older too so not saying he sucks but i think he's we've seen the best of james harden already that's just my opinion speaking of taking over a game it's not an individual player but the entire celtics team took over that game last night they went into brooklyn and they finished the sweep who would have predicted that i mean i'm happy i switched my pick to say that the celtics were going to win the series but at the same time, like, I did not think that a sweep was going to happen. And like I said, this was a must-win series for the Celtics to prove that they could win with this core. I mean, Jason Tatum, Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, There's that's the core. That's the core right there. All three players played good the entire series. 
Marcus Smart proved why he deserved to win Defensive Player of the Year last night. And Jason Tatum, like you said, moving into that superstar level. I honestly think when he's fully healthy, he was already there. But now we're just seeing it at the next level as well. And Jalen Brown has just proven that time and time again, he's a star in the league too. So, yeah, I lo- another thing too, I like the addition of Derek White still late you know, in the trade deadline, he's really proven that he can help this team out too. Overall, I like what I see out of Boston. And now that, you know, there's issues in the East with, you know, Chris Middleton going down on the box, 76ers look like they're hitting a little bit of a drought. There's no reason why they can make that they can't make the NBA Finals now. Fair enough. So I'm going to take the Brooklyn side of things. The Nets are a dumpster fire. I don't care what anyone says. They sacrificed a lot of their depth for James Harden, and they've gotten virtually no return for it. No return. They had, when they got Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving for the first time, they had Joe Harris. Obviously, he was hurt for most of the year. They had Spencer Dinwiddie. They had Karis LeVert. They had Jared Allen. You think they could have used those guys last night? I I sure as heck think they could have used them last night. I mean... They would have won with Jared Allen. Oh, just just add Jared Allen. I think they would have won the series. But... My point is, like, they mortgage a lot of their future. And I get it. You have two guys that are in their primes, and you want to win now. That You had those guys, and you traded for James Harden, who wasn't even, like, averaging 36 points. This was out. You traded for an out-of-shape James Harden. Like, come on, man. Uh, come on. I understood it at the time because, in their minds, they were forming a new big three. And, you know, they never played together, too. That's another thing. They played, like, 18 games together. Like, what the heck, man? Like, that's... That's ridiculous. That's absurd. And that that leads me to another point. Kevin Durant has not been durable the past three or four years. I don't care what anyone says. I don't know why more people don't mention it. Ever since he ruptured his Achilles with Golden State, he missed an entire year. And then then the past two years, he suffered injuries enough to make him miss 15-plus games. Like, he's not durable anymore. And clearly, he's not big enough. He's like a stick. And we all know with Kyrie Irving, you can never depend on him the most games he's ever played was 72 games two years otherwise he's played less than that his entire career i understand his his rights his vaccination status whatever that, that that's his business but the point remains he wasn't reliable even before all covid happened he wasn't reliable whether it wasn't showing up to games or he was he was injury prone too like Kyrie was injury prone too so i don't think they're ever going to win a championship together like as a duo i don't like, as long as Kevin Durant get, getting hurt and Kyrie Irving's doing his little own thing, you know, kumbaya, whatever, talking about how they don't need a head coach, and clearly Steve Nash, I mean, he's not a dummy. Don't get it twisted, but I, I just think he's way over his head in Brooklyn right now, and I think you just don't jump into going from a player to a head coach. I'm sorry. Like, you need to work your way up. That's that's my belief system. Like, you don't go from retiring to be a head coach of, like, a championship-caliber team. Like, you need to work your way up. If he was an assistant, Steve Nash, no problem with it. But for him to be a head coach, like, to me, that's just absolutely and utterly ridiculous. Boston's head coach was actually an assistant coach for the Brooklyn Nets. And, you know, he learned, he worked his way up. And he did a great job in this series, especially defensively, too, with the Nets. So it just, you need to develop coaches. I just don't like, I never liked just throwing coaches out there just like without any prior experience at all. Steve Nash had no coaching experience whatsoever. He didn't coach high school, didn't coach college, didn't coach AAU. You just throw him out there. And to me, that's just irresponsible. The Nets, the Nets were building something, they had like a heck of a team. And then they just, in a matter of two years, they destroyed it, and I, I I didn't even mention Ben Simmons, and that could probably take take me fifteen minutes. But I'm gonna flip it back to you. Like any more additional thoughts about the series as a whole? Oh yeah, I was gonna talk about the Nets. So uh, a coach like Steve Nash, I agree that they should have some experience coming in. But I think he was one of those coaches that like he can adjust on the fly with it. But I think it doesn't matter who the coach is in this situation with how they've been playing. I think it it starts with the front office. And I do want to say, like, to your point and kind of not to your point, Jason Kidd was one of those coaches. He came right in, and we all remember the drink incident where he had his player run into him. Yep. Uh, So he was a dumpster fire to start off his coaching career, but now he's with Dallas. And, I mean, I think, yes, I agree, but at the same time, when you bring him in, the best way to learn is to have that that coaching experience. But, like, 
you know, getting thrusted into it. I think Steve Nash has that basketball mind to be able to be a coach immediately. I just don't think the Nets are the right team to do that because you have two players in Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant who are superstars. They're right now the superstars. They're not going to listen to a coach, period. Like, nowadays, coaching, when you have, like, mega superstars like that, how much did Frank Vogel really have with the whole entire Lakers situation? Uh, that's no true, control. True, true statement. But with me, though, Jason Kidd, I don't, I don't even think he's even that great of a coach. I just think he's been lucky and he's just gotten chance after chance because of his name, his reputation, his status as a player. You know, you look at Brooklyn, he was like, he was so-so in Brooklyn. He went to Milwaukee. I mean, they pretty much, his last year, I think before they hired Coach Bulldozer, they pretty much had the same roster when he was fired before they hired Boldenhoser. They were like a middling eighth seed playoff team. That was that was their ceiling. And to me, like Dallas, he's as lucky as Luka Doncic. I don't know what he'd be without him. I really don't. And, you know, clearly Jason Kidd's respected because he's been an assistant coach as well with the Lakers. So he definitely has a mind like Steve Nash too. Like they're not bums. They're not idiots. I don't know. It's just so hard to tell like who's a good basketball coach anymore because a lot of the success is like predicated by having superstars and you know obviously you have plays in your playbooks and you have rotations and screens and you know assignments that that's stuff coaches draw up but I don't know like Greg Popovich that's the last coach I can think of maybe Eric Spolster with the Heat too Boldenhoser too Boldenhoser yeah Monty Williams too with Phoenix like those are the best coaches when I think of like top tier coaches in the league right now like after that though it's like Unless I'm missing someone. Am I missing someone Like as, as far as elite coach, coaches go? Nick Nurse, too, from Toronto. I think he's pretty good. But after that, it's like a big drop-off. It's a bunch of guys that are – a lot of them are younger. They're, like, newer to the coaching uh, carousel. So, like, you know, Chauncey Billups, I don't know if he's a good coach. Apparently, Willie Green with the Pelicans, he actually also played in the NBA. For the Magic and a few other teams. Uh, yeah, apparently a lot of people were high on him, so I wish him nothing but the best. Clearly – the players like him because they've responded to him nicely the past few months, getting them into the playoffs. But coaching, it's just I don't know how much of it really impacts a game on a day-to-day basis. I really don't. Yeah. No, I'm in, I'm in agreement with it. And coaching just, like, Borrega just got fired from the Hornets. I mean, my thing is, like, how much did he actually, like, the system they were running, they still won 43 games. I mean, I still think if you look at the other East teams, they're really – not a top five East team with talent wise right now, flat out. And it's just like, I mean, the Heat talent wise are better. The Sixers are. Uh, the, I think the Raptors still have a better core. I just, I'm just like, I'm just thinking to myself, is he a great coach? Maybe, maybe not. But I think at the end of the day, it's like a talent thing, especially in the NBA with how much superstars and star players there are. I really didn't like that firing. Um, they got better. Like I know they. Lost their first game in the playing tournament back to back years though. Let's be real, they're probably like the eighth or ninth best team in the conference. Like that, that's just how it is. They're not better than like those teams you mentioned. And you know, he offensively clearly he did something right because they were one of the best offensive teams in the NBA this year. It's just defensively they're not very good, and um, they don't really have an elite defensive player on their roster. I mean, we all know like Lamelo Ball, Miles Bridges, great to watch, but defensively they're not very good. Maybe if they got a rim protector like a Rudy Gobert, wink, wink, maybe a potential trade down the line. I think that drastically alters the Hornets as a basketball team, like a move like that. But then again, Michael Jordan has never been known to make the best business sound decisions as, as far as running a team. I want to transition to the Ben Simmons, though, because like I have to say something about Ben Simmons. This dude, I mean, listen, I'm all for mental health. If you're not doing well like mentally, I feel like you should definitely get help talk to someone, do what you have to do to get better. But, I mean, he didn't play a single game this year at all. Like, at some point, I understand he was quote-unquote hurt, which I'm not even sure I entirely believe. I just think it was an excuse for him not to play. Like, you got to face your demons. And I'm not sure if he's even gotten the proper therapy or the support he, like, should get if he has these issues. I don't know, man. It's just didn't play. He was supposed to play game four, and then, like, now he can't play. And this back thing, I don't recall last year him having a back issue or at any point in time this season really having a back issue until he went to Brooklyn. 
And maybe, I don't know, I don't exactly know if it was made up, but to me, it just always sounded kind of suspicious. The only way he's going to overcome his demons is if he finds it with him himself. I'm not an athlete. I can't speak on experience. But to me, the only way you get through these hurdles, you have to play. And if you sitting on the bench isn't going to help things, it really isn't. And, you know, I get it. People were wired differently. Clearly, he felt some way about Philly fans and the 76ers organization, which is his right. But, I mean, if you want to play basketball, I mean, you just got to figure it out, man. Like, I don't, I'm trying to be respectful and at the same time not disrespectful because I get it. Mental health is a serious thing in this country. But, like, at the same time, I get it. Like, reality takes place in front of professional sports. No problem with that. But I just found it weird. You just never put a single minute for the Nets this year. And I'm not sure if he even will, honestly, in the future. Yeah, you said it well there, and it just um, I want to see him play for the Nets. You know what I mean? I think, I think if they had had him, that would have really helped, honestly. But it's just one of those things where you know I'll be praying for him, and just in case like things are do get rough. So I am gonna move on. You know, I just wanted to say I agree with your points. So it just the Nets are just one of those teams right now. They're at dumpster fire, and getting Ben Simmons, it's it's like pouring kerosene on top of it. So. Uh, let's talk about the NFL draft. This is what we've been waiting for. Uh, th- this Thursday, the NFL draft takes place. Who do you think is going number one? All right, so I'm between three players. I think the Jaguars will draft either Evan Neal, offensive lineman out of Alabama, the kid from uh, Georgia. I forget his name. I think his name's Trayvon. Uh, wait, Trayvon. Uh, yeah, Trayvon Walker, I think it's his name. Yeah, Trayvon Walker. Yeah, yeah, Trayvon Walker. Even Aiden Hutchinson or Kayvon Thibodeau. I think those are still in play, too. But I think I'm going to settle on Evan Neal. I think he's the only number one overall. Jaguars' offensive line isn't very good, and they need, like, a stud to help um, protect Trevor Lawrence. So I think Evan Neal honestly makes the most sense. If not Evan Le- even, like, the other offensive linemen in the draft or or a center, even I wouldn't be mad at that anyway. Just someone on the offensive line for the Jaguars or someone on defense too because the Jaguars' defense isn't very good. So I think they're, they're looking at – offensive line or they were looking at edge rushers i think those are the two main focuses but i'm gonna stick with evan neal though yeah no i um i I could see evan neal going first but i definitely think that hutchinson or Thibodeau are gonna go first and i think that they're both gonna be great players in the nfl but honestly if i were the jaguars i'd probably take aiden hutchinson because i don't know after just looking how michigan did last year and how he played in particular just looking at his stat line, Aiden Hutchinson is is the real deal, and I think that he's one of those players that can come into the league and play well immediately. He kind of reminds me of like one of the Bosa brothers, like where he could just come in, rush that quarterback, just be an impact immediately on that defensive line. I think Aiden Hutchinson's just he's a he's a problem, but I also think Thibodeau as well. He's one another player. I think he's going to make an immediate impact as well. So I think it's as long as the Jaguars take one of those two players, it'll be good. Evan Neal would be a good pick as well. They need an offensive lineman. Uh, but I don't know. I just think that adding to that defense would be pretty nice. Um, they definitely need something on defense because they are the Jaguars. So what what better way to build a core for defense than taking someone like Aiden Hutchinson who won at Michigan, or, you know, Kayvon Thibodeau, who's been a solidified superstar at Oregon for the past couple of years. Yeah, I think, honestly, I'd take Thibodeau over Hutchinson. I think Thibodeau has more upside. But, of course, Hutchinson, I think, is still going to be a very good NFL player. Don't get me wrong on that. But I think Thibodeau actually goes to Houston. I think the Texans will be looking to bolster their defense fine. Maybe not their next J.J. Watt, but another defensive stud to help anchor that franchise for the next five to seven years. So I think Kayvon Thibodeau is their pick. And I think Hutchinson's actually going to go to the Lions. I think that's that's the move they're going to make in the first, their second overall pick. I just think they're, they keep pushing that hometown narrative. You know, obviously he grew up in Michigan, went to college at Michigan. I just think the stars are aligning for him to play football in Detroit. So what about um quarterback, though? Obviously, we kind of talked about it off the air, but – the consensus top two quarterbacks in long mock drafts are obviously Kenny Pickett or Malik Willis. Honestly, I see Kenny Pickett going to the Panthers. They need a quarterback. 
clearly the Sam Darnold experiment failed miserably last year, and I think they don't have very much confidence in him. Plus their coach, Matt Rule, is on the hot seat as well. Matt Rule, also, when he was at Temple, had an established relationship with Kenny Pickett because Pickett actually was supposed to go there before Pitt. But, so they already have that relationship so they can come in and do their thing together. So I think that just makes too much sense for the Panthers to pass up on Pickett. And Malik Wills, though, I think he can go to the Falcons. I think he can go to the Commanders, too. Heck, I think he can even go to the Steelers, too. And the Steelers, apparently, they're in the market for a quarterback. I still want them to focus on defense or offensive line. The Steelers. I know we just kind of like switched gears right there in a second. We can go. You can go back to quarterback if you want, though. But for me, the Steelers. I'm looking at Tyler Linden, Lindenbaum from Iowa, the center. Apparently, he's the quote unquote next Jason Kelsey. If that's the case, I'll take him on my team uh, ASAP. Obviously, cornerback too. I think that could still be improved upon. You know, Sauce Gardner, Kyle Hamilton, the safety. Have him with um Minka and uh, Terrell Edmonds. Ooh boy, good luck with that uh, offenses. Shoot. He used to be teammates with uh, Chase Claypool too. Chase Claypool, yeah. So I mean, even Jordan Davis, who I wouldn't be mad if they drafted him either. Defensive lineman. I mean, you don't know what what two what's gonna look like coming back if he ever does again. Cam Hayward's getting old, older. Still great though. Tyson Alolu is coming off an injury, a serious injury. So having Jordan Davis, young, young, fresh legs, it's going to be hard for the run game on the opposing side's offense to get it together. But, I mean, you can talk about the Steelers, the quarterback situation, whatever you want, Tony, but uh, I'm going to give it back to you, though. They could always just bring Brett Kiesel out of retirement. Brett Kiesel. I'm kidding, of course. But, anyways, I do want to go back to the quarterback because I personally like both quarterbacks a ton, Kenny Pickett. Malik Willis is my boy. Don't get that wrong, but if you're if you're gonna ask me who's the more NFL ready quarterback, I might be preaching to the choir here. It's definitely Kenny Pickett, and I just I just don't I'm just confused on why like the whole hand situation. I'm still confused on the whole hand situation because you know he was great all year last year, and the one thing you have to say about him is he has small hands. And then, like, they throw him out into a test and say, oh, he can't throw in bad weather. Meanwhile, he played in Pittsburgh his whole career. I just don't get it. But I will say this. Like, I was looking. Kenny Pickett threw 497 passes and Willis threw 339. And Kenny Pickett had seven interceptions. He actually had five less interceptions despite throwing the ball over 100 more times. And he completed 67% of his passes compared to Willis's 61%. And Kenny Pickett almost had he had 1,500 more yards than Willis, and it was also against ACC competition. Meanwhile, he played in an independent school. So uh, Willis, though, I do think he's more athletic. He's quicker, but I think Kenny Pickett just has a drive. And like you were saying with Matt Roll, uh, he's from Piscataway, New Jersey. The only teams that really recruited him were Syracuse, which is. Uh, in New York, uh, Temple, Pitt. He's a three-star recruit. Uh, I think the Panthers are really interested in him because, you know, he was that underdog kind of talent. And Kenny Pickett, does, he's not going to forget Matt Roll, was one of the guys that wanted him to come to his team. And Matt Roll was a great college co- uh, co- great college coach for Temple. Mm-hmm. He turned around the Baylor program. Yep. And now this year, you know, they won the Big 12. And even though he wasn't the coach for Baylor, they had a lot of the players he recruited. So he turned around that program. Um, and I just, I know it's not a college football thing, but I think I think it would be a good fit for them. I think also, if you take Malik Willis, too, as like the Falcons or the Commanders, you're not making a mistake there. I just think that as of right now, I think he's athletically talented. He's very quick. I like him a lot. But as of right now, I don't think that he's like as NFL ready as Pickett, and I do think Pickett has upside. Like Joe Burrow, he was it, same thing we're saying. Like we're being said about him too. Like how can he actually, how can that actually translate to the league? Uh, and he just he he was another player. He was an underdog. He had the transfer from Ohio State because he wasn't getting any playing time, and now he's. He's, you said it before the podcast started. He's like, like his work ethic's like Tom Brady's. 
I mean, the work ethic, like, that's all. Like, Kenny Pickett, have you ever seen his freshman year compared to now? Ooh, there's, ab- there's absolutely no comparison. Like, watch the Sun Bowl and then watch him against Clemson this year absolutely torch them. Like, there's just no, there's no comparison. And anyways, Malik Willis, Kenny Pickett, you can't go wrong with either, I don't think. But if you want to be NFL ready, if you want an immediate impact, I think Kenny Pickett's the guy to go with. Yeah, so I agree for the most part, but I'm going to pivot back to the Steelers actually though. So apparently like they're also interested in Desmond Ritter, quarterback from Cincinnati, and Matt Corral, quarterback from Ole Miss. And, you know, when I first heard that, I was like, dude, no, like absolutely not. But the more I've thought about it, the more I like Desmond Ritter, the more I like Matt Corral. I know there's some like arm strength issues with Desmond Ritter, and I know Matt Corral's coming off a major injury. These are guys that don't have to play the year one. The Steelers signed Mitch Trubisky for that very reason, should they go down the quarterback route in the, dra- in the draft. So with me, I honestly, if for some reason Pickett and Willis are gone, if the Steelers spent a first-round draft pick on Matt Corral, I would not be upset in the least bit. I would not. I just don't hope they – I hope they do not draft Sam Howell. I really hope they do not go that route. As far as I know, I don't think they're going to draft him. But if they do in the first round, too, I'm going to have a problem with that because all I see in Sam Howell is Baker Mayfield 2.0, and Baker Mayfield 2.0 isn't going to help you win a Super Bowl. Sorry. I'd rather have Matt Corral, Desmond Ritter, Kenny Pickett, even if possible, or even Malik Wills as well. But Sam Howell, to me, he's like a lower-tier starter. I think that's his uh, ceiling. Baker Mayfield, I think that's a perfect comparison. Both have strong arms, but aren't the most athletic. And they really, to me, they 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 might as well just be brothers, honestly, because they they kind of look similar too. So, yeah, that's that's all I have to say as far as quarterbacks go in this draft. Is there any other player, Tony, that you think maybe hasn't been getting talked about enough in the draft that you just might want want to bring up here? Oh, I did want to say one more thing too about the whole quarterback situation. Go for it. It's not the only position, obviously, but. Uh, it's just like, I think they always get it wrong with like, oh, this is such a quarterback's draft, where oh, this isn't a quarterback's draft. Yeah, I yeah. Because like, I mean, I'm looking at 2018, and you got Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, and and uh, Josh Rosen. I yeah. mean, you also had Josh Allen yeah, and, and, Lamar, and Jackson. Lamar Jackson, but all five were supposed to be good. You got, yeah. and only two of them ended up being like legit. But then you look at like the the draft with Joe Burrow in it. You had Joe Burrow. To uh, Justin, Justin Herbert, Herbert yeah. that wasn't supposed to be a great quarterback class, no. but ended up being an unbelievable one. Yeah, so, just just what you were saying though, people were saying, "Oh well, don't draft a quarterback this year because next year is going to be a lot better." Well, yeah, I mean the top two quarterbacks next year are better than the top two this year. I'll give you that. It's going to be C.J. Stroud and uh, Bryce Young, but the chances the Steelers have a oppor- debatable to be honest. Um, yeah, it is. But the chance of the Steelers, the Steelers aren't aren't going to be that bad to. Be in a position to draft them unless they have like historically bad seasons, both of the quarterbacks, which I don't see happening because they're two of the top programs of college football. But yeah, I mean, the Steelers would probably have to trade up to draft the quarterback next year. And like after those two quarterbacks, I mean, I know people like Phil Jerkovich out of Boston College, but he's been hurt a lot, especially last year. He barely played. So maybe you can get him, Phil Jerkovich, for the Steelers if you decide to pass this year. But that's about it, man. So, you know, outside of Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud, like it's just it's a big drop off once again. And honestly, I think the quarterback carousel this year is a lot more balanced as far as I I can see Kenny Pickett being a good NFL quarterback. I can see Malik Willis being a good NFL quarterback. I can see Matt Corral being a good NFL quarterback. I can even see Desmond Ritter being a good NFL quarterback. I could even see Sam Howell being a productive one if he lands in the ideal spot so bailey zappy oh bailey Z. hey you threw for like 60 touchdowns don't, this don't year sleep on him yeah he might get in the second or third round no cap like i mean for real so yeah he definitely has some upside but no make no mistake though this year's draft is full of very good offensive linemen and a lot of defensive players as well specifically edge rushers and of course wide receivers always deep, deep as well we talked about it like off the show garrett wilson Chris Olave, Jameson Williams, John Metchie from Alabama, Drake London from uh, USC. Those are the top five, I would say, wide receivers in the draft. 
Don't sleep on David Bell, too, from Purdue. I like him a lot. But the point is, wide receiver is always deep in the draft every year. And I find it's no coincidence that the wide receiver position in the NFL is so freaking deep. There's about 50 or 60 or 70 good receivers right now. It's kind of ridiculous, honestly. And, yeah. Do you have anything else to add? Yeah, so you asked me, like, who the Steelers should take. And I think with all the linemen, if Jordan Davis does fall, I take him. I like it. I mean, if Trent McDuffie from Washington Falls, I've liked what I've seen her out of Andrew Booth too. Yeah, Andrew Booth. But honestly, if if Drake London or like uh, Jamison Williams, if they if they fall, or even Chris Olave, if one of those wide receivers is open, I take them. But if you end up taking, you know, like a lineman, or if you end up taking McDuffie, I mean, I I'd actually consider. I mean, Jahan Dotson taking him and like. I think he might be available in the second round just because of how many wide receivers there are. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I'd like to see one of those wide receivers come. Especially, I like Drake London a lot. He was also a basketball player at USC. So, I mean, he kind of reminds me of like, kind of like a Chase Claypool, just that athletic style wide receiver. Um, I think he'll have an immediate impact. I think Olave will. I think Jameis Williams will. Um, I, I think, honestly, Williams is probably the best wide receiver in the draft. And you said David Bell, too. David Bell is so unheralded because he played for Purdue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, when you think Big Ten football, no one thinks of Purdue anymore. David Bell, he, his hands are incredible. I mean, he runs crisp routes. Can't go wrong with any. I mean, they need to make sure they snag at least one wide receiver this draft. No, they they definitely need a receiver because, you know, first of all, outside of Deontay Johnson and uh, Chase Claypool, it's kind of a big drop-off. I mean, especially when you lose Juju as well. So, I mean, wide receiver around one, two, three, four, it doesn't matter to me. As long as they have uh, clear and apparent upside, I'm, I'm a-okay with it. And if they somehow draft David Bell, I'm not going to complain, honestly. But um, do you have any more topics to discuss? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, so we could okay. just, like... I'm just throwing this one out here. So Byron Buxton hits a 469-foot walk-off. We said that, he, you know, this might be the year he actually wins it. MVP, yeah, I hope what, so. What, what are the odds that he wins MVP? Um, I don't know. It's it's a long season, and we all know he hasn't been the, the most durable player. Um, skinny frame, but it has a heck of a bat. We already know defensively he's already one of the best in the past decade, like outside of like maybe – Angelton uh, Angelton Simmons, he's probably been the best offensive player the past decade in the baseball, and that's really not up for debate. But now that his bat's finally starting to come to life, you know, he's in his prime now, and I think if not this year of him challenging for the MVP, I, I don't know whenever, but we all know Byron Buxton had the tools to be a superstar in this league, and I'm glad that he's finally flourishing, and I'm knocking on wood. There's not wood here. But I'm knocking metaphorically. He like somehow just stays healthy, and if he does, I think we're primed to see a great year out of Byron Buxton, though. But as far as him winning the MVP, I'm not so sure he will win it. You still have to deal with Mike Trout. So, no, no matter how bad the Angels seem to be with Mike Trout every year, he somehow is like always top two in MVP voting. So I think that's something he's gonna have to contend with as well. And then there's always someone from the AL too. There's always that one guy that we see that comes out of left field, not expected to see uh, see them uh, compete for the MVP. So, yeah, I think there's going to be a few guys. It's kind of too early to tell who's going to win MVP this year. But I think as we get into June and July and August, we'll have a better understanding and a clearer picture of who's in the race and who's uh, not. And the way it started, Jose Ramirez and Vlad Guerrero Jr., two other guys, mm-hmm. Mike Trout too. So it's obviously up for grabs, but I've loved seeing Byron Buxton actually get to play fully healthy. And it was around this time last year he did get hurt. So if he could just get through the first couple months. Yeah, man, that's, that's key. That's key. But anyways, I did. I think we're getting to a good wrap, wrapping up point. But I did want to do a new like little bit on our show. I'm calling it the Rapid Fire Rundown, where I'm just going to go through impressive MLB stats. So first things first, let's go through the league leaders and home runs. C.J. Crone, six home runs. Well, I, I love him on the Rockies. I don't know. He was came up with the Angels. I played for the Twins, too. Has six home runs. He's been dominant this year. Jock Peterson has six home runs. Byron, for the 
Giants. Giants, yeah. Byron Buxton, six home runs. And my boy, Ozzy Elbies, he's proven that the Braves could make another run this year. Six home runs already. Um, another, here's more impressive stats. Owen Miller was terrible to start last year. Really heated up at the end of the year. Had like five home runs in like two months. He's batting four fifty-five right now. Um, here's some other stats. You know, Sal Romano and Josh Hader both have eight saves. Pablo Lopez two and zero with a .52 ERA. That's your that's, that's your Cy Young winner right there. As of right, he is the April Cy Young winner, and Logan Gilbert is the Cy Young winner on the AL side for April two and zero. .54 ERA, 15 strikeouts and 16 innings pitched. Lopez had 17 strikeouts and 17.1. Yeah. Uh, so, anyways, my last thing I wanted to say: Pirates lose 21 nothing. Still, <laughs> but they still win the series. So they're actually, yeah. Congrats, Cubs. You get, you can have your win, 21 nothing. You lost the series and you're still behind the Pirates and you're still not going to win it. So as of right now, the trajectory you won in 1908, 2016. That means your next World Series will be in 21-24. Yeah, yeah. Just to touch on that real quick, though, Um, people are going to remember the 21 nothing loss more than winning the series. Like I, I hate to say that, but it's just that's just how it's going to be. And you know, they just. You know it's bad when you're on Twitter, in like the Chicago Cubs Twitter pages, like Bears twenty one, Steelers nothing. Like that's pretty bad to get to that point. And just you know, once again, it's just like another low in Pirates history. I I understand they won the series, so I'm not gonna get too negative. But you know, twenty one runs. That's and only hit one homer too. The Cubs only had one homer. I thought they'd have like Alfonso Rivas. Yeah. Yeah, that that's the guy you expected them to hit that homer. But you know. That's just how baseball is. Just that's you just never know what you're gonna get going to a game. It, you always see, no matter how boring people claim to make it or state that it is, there's always something crazy that happens on a nightly basis, and you can't uh, deny that. Yeah, I think we can wrap up the show here, Tony. As always, great talking to you on episode eight here of the Rosetti and Stewart podcast. It's great talking with you too. It's always a pleasure. Just one more reminder before we say goodbye. If you want to listen to this program, you can find us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, Google Podcasts, excuse me, or wherever you get podcasts from. For Tony Rossetti, I'm Justin Stewart. Thanks for listening to Episode 8 of the Rossetti and Stewart Podcast. We'll probably do it again next week, though, but uh, have a great day, everyone.